0: We're now in a series and we're kind of coming through. Now we're kind of coming on the end. We're not there yet, but we're coming towards the real question, dealing with this idea of being grounded. We started off with this idea where Jesus stops and he says, if you want something in your life, if you want to be able to make wise choices, if you want to be able to go in the right direction where you can stop and put your head on your pillow at night without regret you need to base your life on something solid. Now we started off with this idea that most of us already are basing our lives on something. We already filter our choices through several different things. We filter our choices through our politics. We filter our choices through our economics. We filter our choices through our environmental ideas. We, we, filter our choices through our idea of nationalism. We filter our choices through so many different things, but we begin to look at the reality is that each of these things have a bit of a flawed foundation. And Jesus says, if you want your life to stand, if you want to be able to put your head on your pillow at night in all of your areas of your life, if you want to be able to stop and say, you know what? the choice I made was a good choice, and I know it because it was based on something solid, then Jesus says you need to base it upon his word. He says that if we base our life upon his word, it's as if we're building our house upon a rock so that when the storms hit against our life, when the wind blows, when when things are not working right, our life... And the choices we make stand strong because it is founded on something secure. We then begin to look at it and say, yeah, but there's this little fly in the ointment for most of us. Is that we stop and we say, we believe that the Bible's God's word and we're going to base our life on the Bible. But we have a whole big portion of our Bible that we look at and we go, yeah, but what do I do with it? We've got these stories that we love. We've got these stories of Adam and Eve in the garden. We've got the stories of Noah's ark and the, the animals coming in two by two. We've got the story of Abraham and Isaac that we love. We've got the story of Moses and the burning bush. We've got the stories of, of Moses parting the Red Sea. We've got these stories such as Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath. Samson and, oh no, let's forget her for the moment. But we have these stories that we love and we hold on to and we cherish and we teach them to our kids. We put them on cute little coloring pages and we have our kids color them in and and we love them. But the reality is, is that when we look at the Old Testament as a whole, most of us look at it and we go, yeah, but I don't really know what to do with it. I like these stories, but there's these other parts in there I don't know what to do with. I mean, if you've ever tried reading the book of Numbers, and we always throw that one out because, oh. But let's be honest. Let's just say, have you ever tried reading the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy? It gets hard. And you start reading about all of the temple practices and, the, and how God required the slaughter of little innocent lambs, and, and it gets hard. Well, what do I do with it? What are we to do with it as Christians? Are we, are we to begin to build our lives back on the Ten Commandments? And are we to build our lives again back on the, the 600 and I forget how many, 630 laws that the Jews began to divide God's law up into? I mean, where do we go with it? Do we stop eating bacon and should we not eat out at Red Lobster anymore? Is that, is that done? What do we do with the Old Testament? And we began to look at how the Apostle Paul stops and he tells us very clearly we're to look at the Old Testament and see it for what it is. It is a teacher that leads us to something that was to come. It shows our guilt. It shows how far we are from God. And it should lead us. It should be like a a parent who takes their child by the hand and says, Come on, let me show you something bigger. And when the time was right, and the Bible tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And so Paul says, when we get to Jesus, all of a sudden, what should we do with the old? And the apostle Paul says, here's what I want you to do with the old. I want you to see it as a teacher and to learn from it. But let's not do it anymore. It's complete. It's finished. We're told that Jesus came to be not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it, to finish it. And so what are we supposed to do with it? Look at it for what it is. These are the words of God, which was to lead people to Jesus Christ. And when he has come, that which is old is set there to show us why we have something new. Okay, that's a bit of a relief. Most of us go, oh, I didn't want to have a little lamb in my backyard that I was going to go out and cut its throat and put him on. I don't, just didn't want to do that. And so we can breathe a sigh of relief and we can begin to say, okay, that's good. But then that draws us to another question. As Jesus says, if you want to build a life that is solid, you need to build it upon my words. Well, that brings us to another question. Well, why him? Why him? I mean, there have been how many people who have come before Jesus who said, follow me? In fact, there have been how many who have come after Jesus who said, follow me? So why do we look at Jesus and why do we single him out? Why do we stop and in a sense sh- shake at it and say, oh, it's only Jesus? I mean, isn't that one of the songs we sing? Jesus, only Jesus. Okay. I don't know, have we sung that one here? Yes, we have. Okay, I'm looking at the. But why do we sing that? Why don't we sing Jesus and Muhammad or Jesus and Buddha? Or why don't we sing Jesus and, I mean, we could add in how many other names? Why Jesus, only Jesus? I mean, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That's what he looked at his 12 guys and Then he looked out and he said, for those, in his prayer that he prayed, he said, Father, for those who will come after these, I pray for them. Why should we follow him? I mean, we're used to people calling for us to follow, aren't we? In our country, especially, I mean, every four years, we have a group of guys who say, come follow me. Yeah, everyone else who's come before me, they were failures, they were losers, they didn't know what they were doing, but I do, follow me. Vote for me, and I will save you. I mean, it's a story as old as mankind. In fact, when it comes to politicians who say that, one of my favorite, uh, if you've been in politics for very long, Ronald Reagan you remember what his thing was? When he stopped and looked out he says, don't think that government can solve your problems. Government is your problem. Do you remember that? Okay. So for those of us who are a little bit older, I, I, you know, I have to be honest. I absolutely, I hear that and it just sort of, yeah, that, yeah. Here's the reality. It makes me smile because he was actually trying to get into what he was downing. So it's kind of one of those things that make you smile. I also love this. One of my other favorite quotes that just, when you, when you hear JFK, when JFK got up and he says, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Doesn't that just kind of almost send little, you know, what do they call them? Chicken bumps all over you, goose pimples. I mean, it is inspiring But once again, almost like Ronald Reagan's quote, it makes me smile because the reality is, yeah, actually we are supposed to ask what our government does for us. And then we decide whether that's what we want them to do for us. And that's what we're voting on. And so I love these quotes, but here's the reality. We can go through the ages of time and year after year, we can have politicians inspire us to follow them. We can have philosophers who get up and, and amazing thoughts and say, follow these ideas and this will lead you to the promised land. We can have great men and we can have religious leaders. We can have great thinkers, people who think outside the box, who, who have great ideas and, and can challenge us and push us. But the reality is, is why Jesus Why does he kind of raise or or rise above all the others to say, yeah, these others have been amazing men, but they've come and they've gone. They may have challenged us, but they're done. They're no more. Why do we stop and with Jesus single him out to stop to say his words are the words that I'm going to build my life on. His words are the ones I'm going to filter the choices of my life through. His are the ones that are going to let me stand when everything else has, is falling around me. I mean, his teachings are now almost over 2,000 years old. So why Jesus? it is a good question and it's actually a question today even if you've been a follower for Jesus for a long time it is a question that you need to answer because it gives us a foundation why we follow him 2,000 years ago when Jesus came on the scene there were a whole group of people that were asking the same thing Jesus was broke forth in the desert. He called his 12 guys. He got baptized by John the Baptist. And as John the Baptist baptized him, John the Baptist says, hey, guys, you need to follow this man. He's one that I'm not even, I'm not deserving to even tie his shoelaces. And as Jesus began to teach, as Jesus began to preach, people followed. But why Jesus? He was not the first to come through claiming great things. And I can tell you this, he was not the last. Why has he stood the test of time and others have come and gone? Why should you base your life upon a guy who's now 2,000 years back in there in, in our past and we're looking at saying, why him? How does he have the audacity to say that my words will allow you to build your life on something stronger? That will stand the test of time. How does someone have that kind of audacity? It is a legitimate question and it's one we all need to settle in our own minds. You see, that question, as those early people began to follow, they were asking the same questions. And in fact, many of them didn't know the answer. Some followed from afar, asking it continually. And we see it back and forth where they would follow for a while and then they would stop following because they didn't know how to answer this question. Today, we see it the same in churches. Today, we have people who follow for a while and then stop following because we don't know how to answer this question. Why should we follow? Why him? Why can't I take Jesus? And why can't I take Jesus and and put him right next to Buddha. Why why does Jesus go above Buddha? Why does Jesus go above, you know, I mean, we could go Mother Teresa. Why does Jesus go, why does he go above all of our presidents? Because there's something unique and special about him. You see, let's start answering this question a little bit, and I'm gonna have to hurry because the reality is, as my notes tell me I should actually have about little over an hour worth of a message and i'm not going to do that to you okay and so i may have to like kind of move on real quick and if i miss something and you have a question please feel free to ask me why jesus well as jesus stood in front of the group of jews that were predominantly following him here's some of the reasons why maybe they could follow. And we can even kind of weigh it into our decision of whether we think we should follow or not. Why Jesus? Well, number one, he was born at the right time. Now, that's the most goofiest way to start, isn't it? Of course, we're all born at the right time. We're born when we're born. I mean, there's no wrong time to be born, is there? Well, no, but hear me out a little bit. Jesus was born at the right time. There was a prophet by the name of Daniel. Daniel. Daniel had found himself as a young man, very young man, had been captured by the Babylonians and had been taken in uh, as a, to be raised as an advisor to the Babylonian king. Um, as the Babylonians raised Daniel up, they taught him to read, they taught him to write, they taught him basically to be a governor in the Babylonian empire, which is what a lot of the Babylonians did. They would take the brightest young men from all over the, the empires that they conquered and they would use them to keep governing. As Daniel was coming through, um, we assume he began to read the writings of his nation. And we're assuming that as Daniel was reading certain um, prophets, we assume he came across guys such as Isaiah. He began to read guys such as Micah. And we begin to read about these prophecies. And if you would like the passages for this, come to me after and I'll get you the passages where you can begin to read them for yourself, where they were told that they would be into captivity for 70 years. God had told him, you will be into captivity for 70 years. And then he tells through the book of Micah, he begins to tell them, not only will you be in captivity for 70 years, but I will now give you back your kingdom or your land. And so as Daniel's reading this, We we understand that it's getting close to the end of the seventy years, and he begins to get excited. And so, as he begins to get excited, he begins to pray and ask God for forgiveness for his nation for all that they had done. And as he's praying, we know that God gives Daniel another another prophecy in in a sense, and Daniel writes it down, and we call it the prophecy of seventy years, and it's a prophecy broken down into three different sections, or it's the prophecy of 70 weeks, not 70 years. It's known as the prophecy of 70 weeks and it's broken down in three sections. But what it does is it tells us and it breaks it down and it tells you at the end of 384 years, there will be the Messiah who will be born. Well, when Jesus was born, guess how many years it was? 384 years. 383 something right in that time frame. And so the fact is, is as Jesus is being born, there should have been this little thing. In fact, remember when the wise men came? Many people believe it was probably reading the stories or the writings, the prophecy of Daniel, that they understood the Messiah is to come at this time frame. But not only was it the right time, I mean, is that enough to believe that someone, well, no, because how many other people were born during that same year? Let's just be honest. I'm sure that year there were thousands who were born through the nation of Israel. Every mother was probably looking and looking at anticipation thinking, is my baby the coming Messiah? I don't know. This might be the one. But he wasn't just born at the right time. He was born at the right place we're told that he is to be born in Bethlehem. In fact, do you remember when the wise men came to Herod and said, we're looking for this new Messiah that is to be born. And what does Herod do? What Messiah? And he gets to the religious leaders and says, what do we know about this uh, Messiah who's to come? And what do they say? Oh yeah, there's this prophecy that says he's to be born and he's to be born in Bethlehem. And so what does Herod do? Well, I'll fix this. I'll go through and I will wipe out every child of that age. I can take care of this problem. So is that enough? I mean, he was born at the right time and he was born at the right place. But let's be honest, how many children that year were probably born in Bethlehem? I mean, our our odds are getting smaller Let's put it that way. But really, he was probably one of maybe, and we don't know, maybe there was a couple hundred born. I mean, he had a chance of one in 200. Why Jesus? Why him? Why does he get settled and pushed out above everything else? Well, let's just forget all the other prophecies because, I mean, let's be honest. Most people were not reading the books of the old prophets trying to figure out when the new Messiah was to come. There were scholars who'd been studying it for years and they thought they had their ideas and their theories down. But the common man was not sitting there saying, Jesus, do you fit this profile? Let's even forget for the moment the angels who came to the shepherds and sang and announced, hey, holy, holy, holy. I don't know what song they were singing. Glory to God in the highest. that, That would have been my choice, okay? But... I don't imagine that the vast majority of those people were there listening. I don't think they heard it. So why would they choose to follow him? So let's ignore the, all the other. And I mean, the numbers of prophecies and the, and the angels singing, let's just ignore that a moment because no one else heard those things. Why would they choose to follow him? Well, because he began to make claims that no one else would dare to make. He began to say, I am the Messiah. I am of God. I'm from God. I am God. And I have come to do something special. Now, let me just say real quickly, this is where things begin to get complicated because to the Jews, no one would dare make that claim. That's a death sentence. To the Jewish people, to make the claim that I am God is saying I am willing to put my life on the line because anyone who claimed to be God is saying, so if you're going to make that claim, you had better back it up really quickly. And so Jesus began to make the claim, I am of God. Is that enough to make you want to follow? Well, no. In fact, that gets my little alarm bells ringing. I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of other people say some weird things on street corners and I've counseled with people who've said some strange things and usually if they make claims such as God has sent me or God has told me, I go, okay, let me see if I can get some proper help for you. So is that what caused them that they should listen? No. In fact, that should have caused them to maybe put their antennas up and say, what are you doing claiming to be Messiah?" The thing about him, though, is he began to do stuff that began to say, hey, I'm not just claiming something. I'm going to show you something. And so Jesus came, and in broad daylight, not hiding it in some alley to get guys to tell a story of something that happened in the dark in the back room of a back little. He began to, in front of thousands, take five loaves and two fishes and to break them. He began to lay his hand on people who were sick that there was no cure for and heal them. He began to touch the blind so that they were able to see. He began to do stuff and he didn't just say, look, I am claiming to be of God. He's saying, look, here are my credentials. I'm going to show you something that only God can do. And in fact, he went the one step farther and he began to do something that no one would even dare contemplate doing. He began to say, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, I don't have any power to forgive anyone's sin. Is that enough to cause us to want to follow? Now, I got to say, at this moment when the bread is being broken and you're seeing five loaves being multiplied into thousands it caused people to stop and to listen and to watch. But is that enough? I mean, honestly, for us today, we're saying, well, I don't know. me, I don't know. But even in Jesus' day, they were willing to take the bread, but they were still not convinced. Let's put it this way. Even Jesus' own brothers were not convinced at this time. So why Jesus? Why him? Maybe it was because he predicted his own death. He didn't just predict his death, but he predicted what would happen after his death. That, hey, Peter, tonight, before the rooster crows three times, you're gonna deny me. Guys, I need to tell you something. When they come and arrest me, you guys are gonna flee. You're going to hide in your own homes. You guys aren't even going to know what to do. No, no. Okay, is that enough? Well, no. Most of us can read the political winds going on around us, can't we? We can see the writing on the wall, and maybe that's all he did. Maybe he just saw, maybe he saw, yeah, the... The religious leaders and the political leaders are getting restless, and I know I don't have much time left. And yeah, I know my disciples well enough. I know what they're going to do. Is that enough for us to follow? Is that enough to take his words and say, his words must have value because no, that's not enough? The Apostle Paul pulls it down to one thing it's not his timing, it's not where he was born, it wasn't his teaching. It wasn't the fact that he could do amazing miracles. It wasn't the fact that he predicted his death. It wasn't the fact that he fulfilled I don't know how many different prophecies. Paul said there is not one of those things that would cause me to follow him, but there is one thing that would. And he brings it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 17 through 20. And here's what he says. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in this world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who died. Paul goes on to say, why do we choose to follow him? Why does his teachings mean something? Not because they were just his teachings. Why why do we choose to follow him? It's not because he's amazing miracles that he could put his hand on the blind and the blind would see. It's not that he could put his, his hand on the guy who couldn't walk and he could walk. It's not even the fact that he put his hand on a little girl and she came back from the dead, or said to Lazarus, Lazarus, rise up and come walking out of that tomb, and he did. Those are amazing, and I tell you, they would have been a sight to see. But Paul says that does not convince me. I am not convinced by those things. Only one thing convinces me, and it is the fact that they took him, they killed him, he died, and he rose again. What do you mean he died? I I mean, he died. He was crucified. When we understand the crucifixion process, we're talking about a process that is not an idea of a fainting. He didn't faint. He didn't didn't get a little bit of heat stroke and then kind of revived in a tomb because it was cool. He was crucified. They took him, and they whipped him with a cat of nine tails to the point and the place where his internal organs would have been shutting down. They took him, they took his beard where they began to pluck it and literally pull it out so that his body would have been going into shock. And if that wasn't enough, they took a crown of thorns, they stuck it on the top of his head and they took a stick and they began to whack it on him. Why did they do that? To inflict pain. Causes the body to go into shock. There's no fighting back when your body gets to a certain place. It's humiliating. You see, by the time that Jesus hit to the cross, he didn't just stop and, and been whipped, and he didn't just stop and where his organs were shutting down. He, he wasn't just to the place where he'd had his beard ripped out literally by force, by people grabbing it and pulling it. He didn't just have this crown of thorns put on his head and whipped. They went farther. His body that had been bloodied from the cat of ninth thorns, they stuck a robe on it. And as they began to march him through the streets, that robe began to embed itself into those open wounds. We read about they took that robe and ripped it off. You know what that's doing? The body's in a shutdown mode. It can't handle it. And your body literally, from the amount of pain that it begins to do it literally begins to turn itself off. And if that wasn't enough, when all of that was done, they could have literally left him in a heap on the pile of the road. You could have gone and you could have picked him up, taken him home and even tried to revive him and he would not have survived. But they were not done. They, on top of that, took him, nailed him to a cross, hung him in the middle of broad daylight sun or the middle of the day, Causing it to simply say. You want to see what happens. To a body that goes through this. He was dead. No coming back. Everybody who saw that. Every one of the disciples who saw that. Knew he was not coming back. They knew he was dead. In fact when they took him off the cross. The, the soldiers were kind of surprised. Hey is he dead yet? Well, Let's check it out. And what did they do? They took a spear and they thrust it through the side. The amazing thing about Jesus, though, is that life and death were in his hands. And Paul begins to remind us it's not the fact that he predicts his death, it's not the fact that he claims. He died for us. It's not the fact that there were so these so-called prophecies. It's not the fact that he could do miracles. It's not all these things. The thing that draws us to him that says, why do we choose to follow him? Because he died and he rose again. In fact, I want to read one more passage that Paul went on to, to read for us. And he says this, I passed on you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture says. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture says. So he's saying there were all these prophecies and he kind of fulfilled them all. In fact, you can go through the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. In fact, the apostle Paul knew these prophecies off by heart and he says, Here's Jesus. He fulfilled all these prophecies and it was amazing, but that is not the clincher. He goes on to say this He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And it's better than that. He said he was seen by Peter. And then by the 12. After that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have died. Then he was seen by James. And later by all the apostles. Last of all. As though I had been born at the wrong time. I. Also saw him. Paul was saying. This is not something that was hidden. The guy who was dead. And his back came back to life. He's been, been seen so many times. In fact, as he's writing it to the Corinthians, because they were not in Jerusalem at the time. He's still saying, here are some names of some guys. You can go check it out for yourself. Write to James. Write to Peter. Write to any of the other 12. In fact, he said there were over 500 people who witnessed it. Most of them are still alive. And what he's doing is he's challenging them by saying... If you are so want to know check it out for yourself. You see the amazing thing is is that in a matter of days what took a couple of cowards that were hiding in a back room and turned them into guys who literally were willing to stand up at the middle of a major holiday that was got what Jesus got Jesus in trouble saying we're willing to die was not a group of miracles. It was not a group of prophecies. It was not a group of good deeds that he did. It was simply one thing. We saw him. He died. He came back to life. So what is Apostle Paul's conclusion? Why do we follow? Why him? Why does he raise above, arise above all other people who say follow me? Because he died and he came back to life. Paul, Apostle Paul says this. I choose to follow the one who was dead and come back to life. If he's got power of life and death in his hands, what can you do to me? What's the worst you're gonna do? I've seen him. He was dead. Now he's alive. Why him? Well, I think today as we begin to ask That same question. We all have to make that choice for ourselves. Why him? We're all faced with the exact same choice. Why do I choose to put Jesus Christ above? Why is Jesus Christ better than anyone else out there? Every politician, every religious leader. Every amazing pastor, every amazing... I don't know, we can just put anyone else... Why why him? Because he's the one who died and came back to life. He's the one who has the power of life and death in his hands. And really, that's what the Apostle Paul calls us back to. That moment. What do you do with it? How do you decide it? Because if he just died, if he did all these amazing things and he died and he stayed dead... He's just an amazing man. But he didn't. He holds the keys of life and death. Why do we choose to follow? Because there's something more to his claims. If you die and you come back to life on your own strength, I'll reconsider. But until that time, I'll choose to follow the one who died and came back to life. Father, we're all faced with this decision. We've heard the claims over and over and over again. And we've, we hear the stories over and over and over and over again. But Father, sometimes we don't pull it down to where we really think about it. We don't need another religion. We don't just need another set of faith guidelines. There's plenty of those out there. There's things that we could follow. Every four years, Father, we know we we get another set of people who have a new set of ideas for us. And instead, your ideas remain constant. They remain the same. They tell us to love our enemies. They tell us to do good to those who use us. They call us to a kingdom. They call us to life. They call us to forgiveness. They call us to hope. Father, why do we hang on to these words? It's because you died and you rose again. Nobody else has been able to do that. So, Lord, we hold on to your words we choose to begin to build our life and our decisions based upon your words because you did something that I can't do. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed real quickly, this is the decision each and every one of us must face. We're not talking about the decision of being religious. We're not talking about the decision of of becoming a Baptist or becoming a an Episcopalian or becoming a Methodist we're not talking about a decision of we're we're saying what do you do with the one who died and rose again we either choose to follow him because he died and rose again or we say I choose not to I I can't see it I can't believe it that's fine But your choice must be made upon that point. Not based upon the teachings, as good as they are. And I want to say, I think they stand the test of times. In fact, Jesus tells us to build our lives on his teachings. But what will you do with that moment when he claimed he died and he rose again? That is the moment that changes all of our lives whether we accept it or we choose to push it off for another time to think about. Father, help us to take that moment and to look at it and to decide and help us to come to a conclusion. What will we do with the one who died and came back to life? That's what you call us to. That's what the Apostle Paul called us to. To that moment, to that place, to that empty tomb. In your name we pray.